Now, dear ones, we're going to be finishing up Revelation chapter 17 today, hopefully, or whenever we get through it. And I want you to think about how close we are to Jesus Christ coming with his church in this book. In Revelation 19, Christ comes with his church to establish the millennial kingdom. So we are getting there. Here in Revelation 17, we're focusing on the destruction of religious Babylon. Religious Babylon, as I mentioned last time, will be reestablished along the Euphrates. And it will be the headquarters of all idolatry, of all people who want to say that they want to be like God for themselves, knowing the difference between good and evil. Now today, as we finish up Revelation 17, you're going to see two important facts. One, you're going to see that Satan's house ends up being divided. Now how is Satan's house divided? Well, because the Antichrist, the beast, is going to devour the harlot. And I thought, what an interesting title for a a message. If you have to tell people, if they ask you what you learned today in Sunday school, it was, well, how the beast devours the harlot. (laughs) I thought, well, that's a pretty entertaining title. But the point of that is what we learn from it is idolatry turns in on itself. Those who want to be like God will end up not tolerating any other gods than themselves. Okay, so that's what the Antichrist is going to do. Idolatry ends up turning on itself because sinful people will damage one another. And so even the Antichrist ends up with a coalition that will fight and devour against the harlot. And that's where we pick it up here. Revelation 17, verse 15. John continued, he says, And he, remember the he is the angel, said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now remember, there's a big debate in the book of Revelation about what kind of literature it is. And the big debate stems over whether it's apocalyptic literature or whether it's primarily prophetic literature. Well, the reason it's an important discussion is because if the book of Revelation is primarily apocalyptic literature, remember apocalyptic literature uses symbols to convey meaning. However, if you read the intertestamental apocalyptic literature, you read apocalyptic literature before, oftentimes the symbols in it, they're left undefined. So the reader can just simply read in any meaning that they want. But what's very interesting is the writer of the book of Revelation, John, declares in John 1 verse 3 that this is indeed a prophecy. And what's unique about the book of Revelation is he supplies the meaning behind the symbols. And if he doesn't, he'll give you an obvious allusion to the Old Testament that does explain it. So here, John is being given the proper interpretation of what the waters are that the harlot is sitting upon, namely, their people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the harlot sits upon the masses of the pagans within the nations who don't like the true God and who want to be like God themselves, knowing the difference between good and evil. Now, what I want you to do is turn your Bibles to Isaiah 8, verse 7. And the reason I want you to do so is I want you to understand that in the Old Testament, oftentimes, peoples are likened to waters. And typically, they're likened to waters who are going to attack the people of God. Isaiah 8, verse 7. Now, as you turn to Isaiah 8, verse 7, you're going to see that the Assyrians themselves were likened to waters who would overflow and destroy the northern kingdom of Samaria. So notice in Isaiah 8, 7, 
God says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them, that would be the northern kingdom of Israel, a strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. Now notice there, stop. What are the waters of the Euphrates? Well, it's obviously a metaphor because he explains it. He says, Even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all of its banks. So there you have peoples that are likened to waters and they'll be flooding in an invasion of the northern kingdom. So I just want you to see that oftentimes in the Old Testament, peoples are likened to waters. Uh, Norm had a, a passage to read from Jeremiah 47.2. So I'm sorry, Eric. Eric is quick, though. Um, we'll get the microphone there to Norm. Jeremiah 47.2. And here the context is Philistia is going to be judged by the waters, the people of Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah 47.2. Thus says the Lord, Behold, the waters are going to rise from the north and become as an overflowing torrent and overflow the land with all its fullness. The city and those who live in it and the men will cry out and every inhabitant of the land will wail. So notice that phrase that Norm read there, the waters are going to rise from the north. That has to do with the peoples that come from Babylon in judgment of this, in this example of those in Philistia. So oftentimes, again, we see that people are likened to waters. But what's interesting is when we compare that to Revelation 13, 1, here we're going to see a reference to the beast coming out of the sea. But I had mentioned when we were discussing this passage that the sea represents the abyss in this instance. Revelation 13, 1, John said, And the dragon stood, the dragon is Satan, on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So the thing I want to point out here is certainly in Revelation 13, 1, the abyss or the sea represents the abyss. It doesn't represent merely peoples. So what's interesting is sometimes the waters are used as imagery of the abyss, where the demonic realm is, and sometimes it's used to refer to peoples that come in judgment. And so I want to wrestle with the connection between the two, and I want you to consider this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-2. What I want you to see is the relationship between peoples and the demonic realm the pagan nations and how the demons use them, and why water is sometimes used for both. As you turn to Genesis 1-2, I want you to see that God is one who is able to overcome chaos. He's over to, able to overcome that which is formless and void. And you see this in Genesis 1-2, where notice it says, "...the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep." And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Notice the idea of waters is mentioned twice there in Genesis 1-2. It's referred to as the deep. It's referred to as the waters. But notice the earth is also referred to, and it's formless. Literally, it's tohu. Now, remember that term tohu is used of Babylon in Isaiah 24-10 when it's referred to as the city of chaos. So what's interesting is early on is Genesis 1, God is the one who overcomes chaos. He overcomes formlessness. He overcomes the chaotic nature of the sea. Well, this ends up being translated later into him being able to overcome 
the chaos of the demonic realm. He overcomes the chaos of the pagan nations. And he's going to establish order, not only in the heavenly realm, but also here on earth. The city of chaos of Tohu, Babylon, will be thrown down. The city of Jerusalem will be established. Think about how the Israelites didn't like the wilderness. To go into the wilderness was to be sent away from order. It was to be sent away where the demonic are. That's why, remember, where's the scapegoat led in Leviticus 16? Out into the wilderness. Uh, Where does Jesus go to confront Satan in his prayer? Out in the wilderness. Now, we're not to do that. As Bob's mentioned numerous times, if we go out into the wilderness, we bring a sin nature with us, but not Christ. And so the wilderness is a sign of also that which is opposed to God. So, yes, Bob. You're exactly right. And also, in Luke 8, when Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac who was in a cemetery and yes. not in his right mind, they go into swine, yeah. which are unclean, but they go down into the sea. The abyss, right? And then the man is rational, he's in his right mind, he's delivered. Not so profoundly so that when he wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus left him there in the Gentile territory to testify about what God had done through him, through Christ. Amen. So he was now an evangelist. But in the mind of the Jews, that the pigs go into the sea and die shows that Jesus can deliver them from the most horrible, chaotic, hopeless situation. Right. In, In a sense... The demons were going back where they came from. They, yes, exactly. Wow. Amen. Yeah, Bob, as you say that, I was thinking about two Jesus walking on the sea. And remember in the book of Job, it says, only Yahweh can tread down the waves of the sea. So we see that in the beginning of Genesis. See, God alone is the one who can control the chaos of the sea. Jesus alone can tread the waves of the sea. Why? Because he's Yahweh. So the sea is always depicted then, I shouldn't say always, it's often depicted as the chaotic realm of the demonic, and the demonic uses the pagan nations for its purposes. And I want you to see that. Turn your Bibles to another passage. Isaiah 26, we'll start in verse 18. So turn your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 26, 18. And we'll actually read for a little bit here. because I want you to see that the dragon, Satan, is depicted as living in the sea. Isaiah 26, verse 18. We'll read actually to Isaiah 27, 1. Isaiah 26, 18. Isaiah says, We were pregnant, talking about Israel. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Okay, so stop there. The work of humanity in its best, God chooses one nation to be his own. They couldn't affect salvation on their own on their own effort. But notice in verse 19, here's the great promise of what God will do. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirit. Stop right there. Verse 19, you have a clear reference to the resurrection. So here you have the resurrection being taught in the Old Testament some 700 years prior to Christ. Notice verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, 
and close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation, literally God's wrath runs its course. Stop there. There you have after the resurrection, you have people being hidden by God in a place while his wrath runs its course. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> I've mentioned this before. Notice Isaiah 27.1. It says, in that day, we're in the day of the Lord. In that day, Yahweh will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. The same term there for serpent is used in Genesis 3. With his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon. Here's Satan who lives where? He lives in the sea. So do you see again that the sea really represents this idea of the abyss? And so the Antichrist comes from the abyss. But again, the reason I'm laboring this point is why in Revelation 17, 15, does the metaphor of water switch from the abyss to the pagan nations, to pagan humanity? Well, I think there's a deliberate connection. Because again, the demonic realm uses the pagan nations to try to thwart God's promises. Remember in Ephesians 6, what did the Apostle Paul say? Did he say, ultimately, our battle is with flesh and blood? He says, no, it ultimately isn't with flesh and blood. It's with powers and principalities. It's with the spiritual forces. Now, I want you to see the connection, though, between the spiritual forces that ultimately will have their source as the abyss, which the sea represents. I want you to understand that they use the pagan nations to try to thwart God. Let me give you an example of this. Turn your Bibles to Daniel. I just kind of want to do a little bit of an excursus on how the demonic realm uses the human nations, the pagan nations, to try to thwart God. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 10. We'll start in verse 13. Daniel 10, verse 13. Now, as you turn to Daniel 10, 13, remember Daniel had prayed to God. And his prayers were apparently thwarted, not ultimately, but temporarily because this angel, I think it's Gabriel, is being restrained by another angel. And so there's this warfare in the heavenly realm, as it were, that's going on that we don't see, but it's disclosed here. Daniel 10, 13. Here you have Gabriel, the angel, says... He would have come earlier, but he says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. So stop there. All of a sudden you have this nation named Persia, one of the pagan nations. Think of Revelation 17, 15. Everybody see Revelation 17, 15? The harlot sits where? On the waters, and the waters are the pagan nations. So here you have Persia, one of the pagan nations, and who was the head of it? Some demonic being. Some demonic being that comes from the abyss, Revelation 13.1. Are you seeing the connection? So the demonic forces are using the pagan nations for their purposes. Notice he continues, he says, Then he said, this is now in Daniel 10, I'm in verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why he came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So now you have another demonic being, and he's over the head of Greece. Verse 21, he says, However, I will tell you, this is Daniel 10, 21, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, 
except Michael, your prince. Now, Michael, the archangel, is depicted as helping Gabriel against these demonic forces that are ruling over the nations. Now, let me just do a little review. Remember back in, Dan, excuse me, in Revelation 12, during the Great Tribulation, who stands up for Israel? Michael, it says. Michael, the angel, stands for Israel. Why? Because he's fighting against these demonic forces that are leading the pagan nations. So that's the connection I want you to see in the book of Revelation. Is In Revelation 13, you have the demonic abyss that the Antichrist comes out of. But these demonic forces are also using the pagan nations. And that's why the harlot is depicted is sitting upon the waters, which are the nations that are against and arrayed to try to usurp God. That's what they're doing. And you see this, for example, in Psalm chapter 2. Let me just read that. Psalm 2, verses 2 through 8. It says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against Yahweh and his anointed. Why would they do that? Because they're incited by the demonic realm, aren't they? And they're trying to usurp God's anointed. Who's his anointed ultimately? It's the Messiah. That's what Psalm 2 is depicting, that there's this great battle in which the nations are rebelling against God and against his rule. Listen to what it says in Psalm 2, 3. It says, let us tear their fetters apart. This is the desire of the nations and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be bound by God. That's what the nations are saying. We don't want to be bound by him. We'll be God. We'll determine for ourselves what is good and evil. The very same sin that Adam and Eve succumbed to in the garden. Psalm 2, 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger. This is God. Excuse me. Let me back up to Psalm 2, 4. It says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So notice God's plan is to install his king where? On Mount Zion. So in the book of Revelation, when we proceed to Revelation 19, Christ comes back and he's going to establish his kingdom where? On Mount Zion. But what are the forces, the enemy forces and the nations trying to establish? Babylon. That's what they're trying to establish. And so that's the battle that I want you to see. The sea is often depicted as the demonic realm, but it's often depicted as well as the nations that are being used by the demonic realm to try to overthrow God. Yes, Eric. Actually, I'm probably, just, I'm probably just emphasizing something you just said. It's God that will establish the kingdom on Mount Zion. And that's Amen. in the future. Exactly. The nations, right. the nations will be busily, and they already are, busily trying to establish their own kingdom. Okay? Amen. And that's in opposition, really, to God. Right. Well said. Do you remember some years ago, we had a president of the United States who said, we were the ones we've been waiting for? Do you remember that? No, I'm not saying um, other presidents of other political persuasions don't say things that are pagan. They do. But I was thinking Marxism is the attempt to try to establish the kingdom here on earth, isn't it? They're going to bring utopia on earth. And so think about how that Marxist system is really being used to try to establish Babylon. It is one of the predominant false religions in our day. And it is being used by the demonic forces to try to establish Babylon Because Babylon is established by man's works. What's Jerusalem established by? God's grace. So you're going to live for one city or the other. 
It's either Jerusalem established by his grace and power alone, or it's Babylon that's trying to be established by man's power and ability. Okay, now we see as we turn to the next verse here that the beast is going to devour the harlot. Listen to what John says, verse 16. It says, In the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Well, that's not a pretty picture, is it? Now, notice the ten horns that you have here are the ten kingdoms that are arrayed with the beast. And here, they're going to turn against the harlot, which is Babylon, by giving their allegiance to the beast and attacking her. And so this is what we see Jesus alluding to, in a sense, in Mark chapter 3. Remember he said that Satan's house, if it is divided, it cannot stand. Well, lo and behold, we do see in the book of Revelation that Satan's household is divided. Because here you have the beast, which really represents a false Christ, turning against the false religious system. And ultimately, the reason why the beast is going to do so is because the beast won't tolerate anyone being God other than himself. So isn't it interesting? The beast is going to try to enforce God's law, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he's going to try to enforce that for himself. Now, we also learn from this that idolatry turns in on itself. So instead of these idolaters bringing about a utopia, what instead happens is you're going to have them fighting. Isn't that rich? Those who said, really, the problem in this world is God's rule, and if we could get rid of these intolerant Christians, we could live peacefully. Well, here you have the beast attacking the harlot. You have the beast, the Antichrist, attacking those who are engaged in false religion. So they can't even tolerate themselves, right? And they will go after one another. Now, one thing I want you to see is notice it says that they will burn her up with fire. Does everyone see that in the red? Well, interestingly enough, that comes from the Torah. It comes from the law in which God had said if a person engages in sexual immorality... They shall be burned up with fire. Let me give you an example. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus 20, verse 14. Leviticus 20, verse 14. Listen to the law. Now, again, remember, physical uh, sexual immorality is often something that points to a greater problem, which is spiritual harlotry or idolatry. They often go hand in hand. So, here in Leviticus 20, 14... Is talking about the physical immorality. It says, if a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be what? Burned with fire. So do you see then the harlotry, the immorality is to be burned with fire. Well, the same thing is going to happen to those who engage in this type of idolatry. They will be burned with fire. And God will use even these pagans, these pagan nations aligned with the Antichrist, to bring this about. Now, the other thing I want you to see is that judgment upon Judah and Israel often happened in the past by God bringing upon them their idolatrous lovers to, to smite them. And I want you to see an example of that from Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 22. Please turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 23, verse 22. And the reason we're turning to this is we want to see the lesson that idolatry does not lead to utopia. Ultimately, 
idolatry will turn in on itself. People who are idolaters will devour one another. People who are idolaters will not bring about a kingdom. They'll bring about a virtual hell. And we see this all the way through history. Here's Ezekiel 23, 22. Now remember, in Israel's history, they always had a choice for protection. Would they trust in Yahweh or are they going to trust in an alliance with their pagan neighbors? Well, time and time again, the Israelites chose the wrong thing. The kings of Jodah, like Ahaz, trusted in foreign alliances with the idolaters rather than trusting in Yahweh. So listen to the result of it, Ezekiel 23:22. It says, Therefore, O Oholiabah, which, by the way, is Jerusalem, according to uh, earlier on in verse 4 of Ezekiel 23, there's another term, Oholah, which has to do with the northern kingdom, Samaria, but Oholabah is Jerusalem. So he's calling out Jerusalem. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you. Now stop there. Who are the lovers? They're the ones that they trusted in, the idolatrous nations, whether it would be Baal, whether it would be the gods of Babylon or Assyria. Because you trusted in them, God is saying, they're going to turn on you. They're going to be the ones who come after you. They're not going to bring good things to you. They're going to bring destruction upon you. And he says, he says, Behold, I will rouse your lovers against you from whom you were alienated, and I will bring them against you from every side. So, dear ones, again, idolatry does not lead to good things. Idolatry will always turn in and of itself. Now, what's interesting is when you look back at the history of Israel, God gives the example of the Israelites trusting in idolatry, and their idolatry turns against them. But in the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, God does a reversal in which he takes the idolatry of the nations and turns that against them. So remember, in the 70th week of Daniel, you have a lot of things that used to happen to Israel, but there's going to be a reversal. Let me give you an example. Remember back in Revelation 6, 8, it was the fourth seal, and God said he was going to send upon the world sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, those four instruments of judgment. Well, those were the four instruments of judgment that he used to use against Israel, according to Ezekiel 14, 21. So God is using forms of judgment against Israel, and all of a sudden the 70th week breaks forth. He does a switcheroo, and he now pours these same things he used to pour upon Israel upon the pagan nations. And now he's going to deliver Israel. So that's a reversal that we also want to keep in our minds. Now there's another... Oh, I'm sorry, we got a question or a comment. Yeah, I just put a quick bookmark here. Uh, So in other words, except that you're uh, in the Lord, you're amongst the elect... No one is safe. Amen. Right. And then the second one is kind of a rabbit trail. I hope it's not too bad. But you were saying that Marxism uh, is uh, an attempt to try to build the kingdom on earth by yeah. man himself, correct? Yes. Uh, and, and Gandhi's time, was he trying to do the same thing? Yeah, I, I, Gandhi had a little bit of a different desire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Gandhi's desire and that of Hinduism and Buddhism. Right is really the desire to escape suffering. So, for example, Buddhism is really the desire to have your Atman reach Brahman. And I know that sounds like a mouthful, but what it is is trying to realize that you're really God, that you're really one with the universe. And so it is an establishment of you being God, but it's not necessarily the design to try to 
bring about a kingdom in the sense that we think about it. Okay, it's uh, the that, desire actually, though that to be question like God. leads in a direction, and that yeah. is this. Oops. Uh, actually, it's this. Um, when we try to do evangelism by our own merits, um, that's a mistake. Yeah. Correct? All right. Yeah. Um, when we try to, oh gosh, I hope I don't get too confused here. I'm sorry. But uh, if we try to uh, bring God's kingdom about by our own merits, that's a mistake, correct? Amen. That's all right. All right. Yeah. Uh, so where is evangelism in all this? I mean, are we tr- to do nothing? We just pray for the Islamic people and just go away? No, no, no. no. Um, yeah, don't misunderstand me. When we're talking about building the kingdom of God, if we are following God's commands, God says, remember, think about Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. We're commanded by God. So ultimately, when we're doing it, we know that we go out in faith, we present the gospel. But God ultimately brings people to salvation. He brings them to faith. Even faith is a gift in and of itself. So, yes, he uses us as instruments to bring about his kingdom, but he's the one who's building it. And apart from his grace, it will not come about. So you're right, his kingdom is coming about completely by his power, his gracious work. Yes, we get to be instruments of it. But let me show you where Christians will go wrong. The doctrine of post-millennialism says, for example, that we're going to be so successful in Christianizing the planet that what happens is Jesus Christ, when he returns, he merely returns to take the scepter, the rule, of a kingdom that's been already brought about through our evangelistic efforts. Now, let me just ask you the question, all of you, when you read the book of Revelation, is that a fair reading of the data? Are we going to be so successful that the earth is almost Christianized? That's not the reading that I have. <laughs> yeah, Bob. Well, there is an overwriting principle found in Jeremiah 17.5. Mm. covers all of this. Cursed is the man whose trust is in mankind Amen. and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Amen. And then, of course, the opposite is, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Right. So all of these religions and ideas and plans are nothing more than trusting in mankind. Amen. And that means we're cursed if we do that. Right. Amen. So I hope that answers your question, Paul, that we're not against evangelism. God certainly uses that. In fact, we're going to talk about that in Romans 10. How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So God uses instruments, but it's always him, God alone, that's building his kingdom. Yeah. Eric. I think that what Paul's brought up is an excellent point, an excellent question, because um, I've got a good friend who was a form, is a former Muslim, and they did evangelism in Pakistan, and I've spent a lot of time with him. We've talked a lot about evangelism in the Muslim world, which the Christian church has failed miserably, and of course that failure might continue. Um, and what my friend has told me is he said, you know, Eric, the things that don't work are what all the churches are doing. They're trying to build bridges. Yeah. They're trying to, uh, you know, dr- dig wells. They're trying to do all kinds of things, and he laughed. He said, you know, usually there might be a Christian uh, pastor in the community, and no one goes to his church, but then the missionary comes, and they're going to build a well. <laughs> and yeah. so everyone says, yeah, I believe. <laughs> right. but, but in other words, what, what my friend has said, he said, we should do like Jesus said at the, at the wedding parable, bring out the good wine first. Mm. Not our works, but the gospel. And 
So the reason I'm so interested in what Paul had to say is that all of us, we really do need to, to realize that it's in God's hands, but then we're responsible to give an account for the hope that's within us and be able to present the gospel. That's, and, and we all grow in our faith if we do that, if we try. So, but it is all in God's hands. And so th- this is really one of the issues that really faces Christendom, I think, yeah. in our era. Well said, Eric. You know, and as you're saying that, I was thinking of the seeker-sensitive movement. The seeker-sensitive movement, the reason why it fails so miserably is it tries to reach out to the felt needs of the pagans. Well, the felt needs of the pagans is never to be delivered from the wrath of God. It's always to have a, a well-built or something like that to have a better life here and now. But it's never to be spared from the wrath of God. And so the seeker-sensitive movement was man's attempt at building God's kingdom. But what's, one other point I want to make is sometimes when missionaries fail, it's not always because, um, and I know you're not saying this, sometimes missionaries do genuinely give the gospel, and it's just simply rejected. Look at Jeremiah himself, the weeping prophet. Um, if, if you were to look at his ministry from the perspective of numbers, you might say it was a dismal failure, and yet he was completely faithful to God. So at the end of the day, what we're simply left with is we're the mail carriers, we present the gospel, and God does what he wills with it. He either regenerates or he does not, but it's ultimately up to God. Yeah, Lonnie. <clears throat> yeah, I remember that early on in my Christian life, um, you know, uh, learning evangelism and so on. Yeah. Uh, a lot of evangelicals would put a guilt trip on you saying, well, how many people have you saved? You know, and stuff like that. They, they'd always come up with that. You, you should be focused on that. And, you know, it was all about numbers. Right, right. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It's like your ERA average or how many points did you put up as a basketball player or something? Or how many yards as a running back? Yeah, we're keeping score. And at the end of the day, if you have your theology right, none of us have saved anybody. It's God. It's God alone. And if we're going to boast that we've done it, as Bob just pointed out, let who, he who boasts boast in the Lord. So, yeah, the Lord saves everyone who is saved. Yes, Eric. Yeah, we're, we're beating this to death, but I think it's so important. And, and I'm, I'm, I was talking to someone earlier before church, and, and I was trying to think of the quote from, that Jesus said, and I think you referred to this just a week ago. You know, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Yes. You know, this was Jesus in the book of Matthew. Yes. Do, do you remember that quote exactly or that scripture? Yeah, Matthew 7.13, I believe, if yeah. I recall correctly. And it's, yes, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter in through it, but narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few find it. Yeah, absolutely. We don't know who's going to find it, but our responsibility is to, is to at least try to help people. That's, that's really what it is. Exactly right. We present the gospel, and they either respond or don't, and it's God's doing if they do. Yes. I'm sorry, Barb. I just have a quick comment to a lot of the, the, this kingdom now false yeah. teaching. Um, a lot of the people, the pastors or whatever, who, who espouse it, deny the penal substitution of Christ. Yeah, amen. Yeah, there's no need for it. There's no need to be forgiven. There's no need for propitiation. They have a different God. Uh, the true God that exists demands payment. And either the payment is paid through Christ in full or you pay it for eternity in hell. But what they're saying is that that God doesn't exist 
In fact, he will tolerate something less than the perfection of Christ's atonement. So it's really a form of idolatry, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, Peter. Eric, just a quick comment. I know we've been challenged in the past about the terms of exhorting. Yeah. I think you've talked about exhorting the gospel and letting the gospel do the job. I mean, the power is in the word versus exhorting the flock. Can you share anything about that? As as far as uh, being one who just simply lets the word do the work? Yeah, you know, I think that that's the key is, I remember uh, Mike Gendron came out to speak to us. Many of you have heard him. If you haven't, he's an evangelist that Bob had been kind of befriended and all of us here at Gospel of Grace had befriended. And he likes to use the analogy that we're mail carriers. When we go out into the world, we deliver the mail, but God is responsible as to whether it's opened, whether the mail is responded to, whether it's believed, etc., So our job is simply to go out and let the gospel be the only offense. That's why, remember in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said to those who are under the law, I became like one who is under the law, although I myself am not under the law. The point of 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul eliminated any other offense other than the gospel. So when we go out, we want the the offense to be the gospel. So, you know, if you've uh, not brushed your teeth in a while, you may want to work on that. (laughs) Right? Uh, my, My point is eliminate any other offense. Let the gospel be the offense. But if people are offended by the gospel, that's where you don't compromise because it's the narrow road. So if, in fact, they're going to be saved, God will regenerate them so that they do respond to it. But if they hate the gospel, then that's the natural reaction of man, unregenerated, unaided by the Spirit of God. But at the end of the day, you can't force anyone into the kingdom. You can't push a rope, as the old saying goes. Uh, So it's God who does it. Yeah, Peter. It's not your responsibility to remind them to brush their teeth. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, my, my whole point is simply is when we go out, I think the way to look at evangelism is try to eliminate any other offense, but let the gospel be the offense. Um, one mistake I've made in the past is a lot of times I like to talk politics. And I remember this is just recently I had a gal who wanted me to sign a petition, and I reacted against her petition in a calm manner, and, and I was nice to her. But I thought, why didn't I use this as an opportunity to give the gospel? Because at the end of the day, her worldview is wrapped up in whether or not she's going to believe in Jesus Christ. So I went after the worldview rather than the gospel. So I make mistakes too. So let's get out there with the gospel. Let that be the only offense. Yeah. Okay. Now, one thing I want to point out as we keep proceeding here is, isn't it interesting, the Antichrist, he in some sense is going to try to enforce the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And he won't tolerate the harlot and all of the idolatry associated with the false religion of the day to be worshipped because he wants all the worship for himself. And you see this all the way back in Daniel. I believe in Daniel 11.36, just prior to this, there's a discussion about the kings that were earlier on. But when you get to verse 36, there's an allusion now to the Antichrist himself. And listen to what it says of him. It says, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation, that's really the wrath, is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods 
of his fathers. By the way, do you notice the line at the very end in verse 37? He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. That's one of the reasons why I'm fairly confident that the Antichrist will not be a Muslim. A true Muslim has to have regard for the gods of his fathers, you see. But this one is going to exalt himself as God. And he will not tolerate anyone else taking the glory. He, in fact, is zealous for his own deity. There's another passage that speaks to this. You can turn to it, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. You can turn your Bibles to that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the day of the Lord, is not present, unless the apostasy first and the man of lawlessness be revealed the son of destruction. Now verse 4 describes who he is, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So here, dear ones, the reason why the Antichrist must turn against the harlot is he will not tolerate anyone else receiving worship. He alone will be worshipped as God. So, isn't it interesting that even itself is a distortion against the true commandments of God? Yes, we shall have no other gods, but the question is, who is God? It's not Antichrist, but it's Christ. Now, we see God uses pagans for His purposes, verse 17. It says, for God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Now notice at the very beginning in verse 17, it says God put it in their hearts. The heart, remember, isn't simply our emotions, but the heart is the seat of both the mind and the will. So literally you could say, for God has put it in their minds and in their will to do what? To execute His purpose by having a common purpose and giving their kingdom to the beast. Now one of the questions this raises is how does God put it on the heart of these pagans to do this evil act by giving their allegiance to the Antichrist? Now, here's where we want to be careful. We certainly see that God is sovereign over it, but is He the instrument by which sin comes? Well, we want to be very careful to say, no, God is not in any way have His hands touched or entwined with sin. He is not the instrumental cause of anyone's sin. And a passage that clearly teaches that is found in James 1, verses 13 through 14. Let's review that again. Please turn your Bibles to James 1, verses 13 through 14. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of wrestle with how is it that God puts it on the hearts for pagans to do evil things. James 1, 13 through 14. James 1, 13 through 14, James says this, very important passage. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So notice ultimately the reason why the pagan goes astray and follows sinful desires is because the lust is from within. The lust comes from here. The sin nature is here. So this should bring our minds back to Romans 1. Let me connect some passages together for you. In Romans 1, remember what happens to those who should have clearly known about God through the created order so that they are without excuse, as it says in Romans 1.20. Remember it says that they went 
And they went and made idols. They didn't worship and serve the true God, but instead they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. And as a result of that, in Romans 125, it says that God gave them over to the lusts that were in his flesh. No, the lust of their flesh, the lust that was in their hearts. So here's the point. All God has to do to harden Pharaoh, all God has to do to harden those who are pagans, who are outside of Christ, is simply give them over to their own lustful desires. So therefore, the instrumental cause of the sin in giving the allegiance to the beast's kingdom is within the sinner itself, yet God is sovereign over it. He doesn't make them do it. He simply lets them do it. He hands them over to it. Uh, is, does that make sense? So, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, Lou I think Ann. that's all wonderfully said. And I would just add, too, that uh, the Bible talks about how Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Yes. And so oftentimes we think this is a good thing, like this utopia, the Marxist promise. The end looks like a wonderful thing, but it's Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. I mean, the teeth eventually end up biting us. Amen. Amen. Yes, well said. Um, I couldn't say it any better. Galatians 1, 8 through 9, remember, even if an angel from heaven would preach a different gospel than the one I had preached, let him be an anathema. And the implication is, yes, you will have great-sounding messages that come from other sources. But at the end, the test is the doctrinal test that we have from Scripture revealed by the true Spirit. Yes. So I agree completely that God is not the one who does... Um, tempt and um, cause the evil. I am curious as to why this reads this way. Um, I don't know if it's a translation in English or if there is. Um, it, it makes it sound, it seems like it could have been written in a different way to allow for more um, <laughs> of that idea. I don't know. I see what you're saying. In other words, the actual phrase itself put it in their hearts. Yeah, you know, the, the placement within their hearts, I think it does imply that God is sovereign over it, um, just as we see that he hardens Pharaoh. But when we start peeling back the onion layers and saying, well, how is it that he hardens? That's where we have to say, well, he hardens by letting them be who they are. So when we think about two different groups. We have the reprobate, who are the lost, who are destined for destruction. Then you have the regenerate, the elect. God, in a sense, with the elect, he is hands-on. In order to bring us to the kingdom, God intervenes within our heart and has to regenerate it in order for us to believe. That's why we see in Ephesians 28 through 9 that even faith itself is a gift of God so that no one should boast. But when it comes to the unregenerate, all he has to do to put it in their hearts or to harden Pharaoh is simply let them go their own way. Remember in the garden, the initial sin was, you will be like God. In that Sin nature from Adam is deeply rooted in every human being. And that idolatrous rebellion rooted within us means that all God has to do to put it in our hearts is simply leave our hearts alone. So for the believer to come to faith, he has to do a heart transplant. But for the unregenerate to go to hell, he just leaves the sick heart there. And he lets them go their own way. So yes, the language certainly is that God was active in it. And I would say, in a sense, he is. He can certainly ordain events in which people will say, yes, I want that. In other words, he ordains things to come about. But he's not making people do evil in the sense of pulling soft hearts 
and enabling them or enforcing them or making them to do sinful things. So even though the language is clearly, he put it in their hearts, he's sovereign over it, I think we have to look at other scriptures and say, no, God isn't the one who's making them sin. It's the lust from within. Does that help, Christy? Okay, a little bit. (laughs) I think sometimes we're going down a rabbit trail a little bit when we're talking about what we're talking about. One time I I had a, a son and he went to the refrigerator and he said, who took my cheeseburger? And I said, if I gave you the name and the address of the guy who took your cheeseburger, would it make it better for you? You know? In other words, sin is sin. Regardless from sure. what direction it comes, let's concentrate on what sin and how it is dealt with. That's the sure. more important thing as opposed to who originated it. Paul, I agree. And if the scripture was silent on the issue, I would say amen. However, we do have passages that we have to wrestle with. On the one hand, in James 1, 13 through 14, God doesn't tempt anyone, but they're led away by their own lust. Revelation 17, 17, he puts it in their heart to execute his purpose, to give their allegiance to the beast. How do we reconcile those things? So my point is not that we're going down a bunny trail, but we're actually trying to reconcile these passages and understand what God is saying and what he's not saying. So I would agree if there was no passages that were relevant to the issue, I would think it would be a bunny trail. But this is relevant to the issue. So that's where I would just push back a little bit. But I agree, at the end of the day, sin is sin. Human beings are ultimately responsible, culpable. We're on the hook for it. And the remedy, again, is, is Christ and through regeneration. Yes, Bob? In theology, we talk about the judgment of reprobation. Amen. Exactly. And you preached on that from Romans 1. Right, right. Amen. That's exactly right. And yes, reprobation is where God hands people over. Now, one thing I want to come back to is I want to distinguish here between God's moral will and his decretive will. Notice they're going to execute his purpose by giving their kingdom to the beast. And I want you to think about in red, you have God's moral will. And the unregenerate humanity is culpable for violating it. Why? Well, it's immoral to give your allegiance to the beast, the Antichrist, rather than to Christ. That's a clear violation of God's moral will. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it isn't Antichrist who's God. It's Christ. So there's a violation of God's moral will. All the while, those who are doing it are fulfilling God's decretive will. So here, notice, they're being used by God to fulfill that. Now, another example of this would be seen with what God did to Pharaoh. In fact, we learned this in our studies in Romans 9. Here in Exodus 9.16, remember, Pharaoh would not let... God's people go. He violated God's moral will. But notice God said he was going to do so and fulfill his decretive will. Exodus 9.16, it says, But indeed, God says, for this reason I have allowed you to remain. What reason? So that God's wrath could be, or God's power could be demonstrated through Pharaoh. It was in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So here even Pharaoh violated God's moral will to fulfill God's decretive will. So here's what I want you to consider. We are all on the hook to fulfill God's moral will, as revealed in the scriptures. So none of us can ever say, you know, God, I really went against your moral will because I know I was, gonna, I was going to bring about your decretive will, your providential will, by violating your moral will. Now, a passage that addresses that is, think about Romans 6.1. Paul had laid out in Romans 5 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
So sin, ultimately, God used it to bring about a greater display of His grace. Paul asked the question then in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, violating God's moral will, so that His grace may abound? We bring about His decretive will? What's Paul's answer to that? May it never be. So, dear ones, remember, you and I are not responsible for bringing about God's providential will. We're responsible for obeying His moral will. Okay, now, sometimes the decretive will is His moral will. They're one and the same. Let me give you an example, though, a concrete example. Some years ago, I was part of a ministry that had promised, they had speakers that would come to a certain event, and this one man was promised a certain time slot. Well, he wasn't given that time slot, even though it was promised to him by the head of this ministry. Well, I told the head of the ministry that you really have to honor your, your time slot that you had given to this individual. Well, this person responded saying, well, I'm, really, I'm not giving him the time slot I agreed to because I'm trying to test him. Now, what's her responsi- the person's responsibility there? The person's responsibility in that instant is not to test the person, but to let their yes be yes and their no be no. If they made an agreement, they're to honor their word. So whether or not God wants to test this individual by seeing how humble they will be by taking another time slot, no, God will test the person as he sees fit. This person's job was to simply let their yes be yes and their no be no. That's how you and I should act in this life. We don't always know what God is going to bring about providentially in history, but we certainly know what he is required of us from the scriptures. And so that's a good lesson to say, look, I'm on the hook to obey God's moral will. I'm not always on the hook to bring about his providential will. Okay. All right, now, how much time do we have? We're almost out of time, aren't we? Okay, now, I want to just point out this, um, that the harlot is Babylon rebuilt. And we see this clearly in this verse, Revelation 17, 18, very important verse because it shows us that ultimately the harlot is a city. Babylon really will be rebuilt. It says, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, remember, I had ruled out Rome. Many people think that Rome is Babylon. But I pointed out the problem with that interpretation is this harlot sits upon the seven heads, which are seven kings or kingdoms. And some people try to say, well, those seven were the seven emperors. The problem with that view is if Revelation was written during the time of Domitian, I think it is provably so, you had 12 emperors up until that point. You had too many. Some people argue that the book of Revelation was written ter- during Nero's reign. Well, Nero was the sixth head or emperor. Well, remember, the Antichrist, who is the beast, is both the seventh and an eighth kingdom. So my point is, Rome simply cannot be Babylon. It's ruled out contextually. The second thing is that Jerusalem is contextually ruled out. Remember two passages. Write these down. How do we know that Jerusalem is not Babylon? Two passages. One is Revelation 11.8. The other is Revelation 16.19. Revelation 11.8, remember? That's where you have the two witnesses. They're lying dead on the streets. And John says they're lying dead in the streets of the city that's mystically called Sodom and Gomorrah. Literally, he says Jerusalem is spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah. If there was ever a time for John to link Jerusalem to Babylon, there was his opportunity. He doesn't do so. 
Another reason we know that Jerusalem cannot be Babylon is Revelation 16.19, which says the great city, that's Jerusalem, was split into three parts, a result of the, the great earthquake. And the cities of the nations fell. So notice the distinction. Jerusalem is a city of Israel, God's covenant people that he will have in the 70th week. You have the nations, their cities fell. Then it says Babylon the Great was remembered before God. That's one of the cities of the nations. Clearly Babylon is not Jerusalem in Revelation 16, 19. So the reason we know also Babylon is contextually ruled in as the harlot, the place where all of the headquarters of idolatry will focus in the seven, last seven years on earth, is because of the mention of the Euphrates. We know that the king's armies that come to invade Israel, they don't come from the west from Rome, they come from the east, they come from the direction of the Euphrates. Remember at the sixth trumpet and in the sixth bold judgment, you have the demonic that are holding these armies back and they're restrained. Where are they restrained? At the Euphrates. The Euphrates, dear ones, is mentioned, not the Tibris. The Tibris is, of course, one of the rivers that goes through Rome. So contextually, we know that Babylon literally will be rebuilt, just as the pagans tried to make a name for themselves and be like God all the way back in Genesis 11. They're going to do it again. And it will literally be rebuilt, trying to usurp God and His authority. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do is, next time we get into this, we have a guest speaker next week, uh, Steve Minty here. No? Oh, he just headed out. Okay. I, th- I thought I saw him back there a little bit ago. But um, he's going to be speaking next week. But the next time we're in the book of Revelation, we're going to talk about, again, the significance of Babylon. We want to look at the Old Testament Babylon and the New Testament Babylon, as it were. We're going to see connections once again. But at the end of the day, dear ones, what the book of Revelation is showing us is that we're going to live for one of two cities. Again, we're going to either live for Babylon, which is created by man's power and of all of its faults and its idolatry, or we're going to live for the coming Jerusalem, which is established by the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. That's really the choice for all of humanity. And of course, we know that the only way anyone will be a partaker in the coming kingdom in Jerusalem is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That is the narrow road that leads to salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for showing us these truths that at the end your kingdom will win, that your forces win, Lord, that your son will bring about this coming Jerusalem and you will throw down Babylon and that all who have opposed you and have taken their stand against you and your anointed, that you do scoff and laugh in the heavens and that one day you will establish the Messiah in Zion. We thank you for these promises. I pray, Lord, that in the dark days of life we would have these things instilled deep in our heart so that we live for your kingdom and we do not sin against you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.